So welcome this evening. We are continuing with our series in systematic theology. This is session number 32. We just finished with the portion of our study called Christology, where we looked at the names and titles of Christ, the divine nature of Christ, the human nature of Christ, the union of Christ's two natures in his single divine person, the sinlessness of Christ in his humanity, the virgin birth of Christ, and the offices of Christ in his office of prophet and his office of king. And now it's time to move on and look at the portion of systematic theology called soteriology. Soteriology, and that's just a fancy word for the doctrine of salvation. And as we look at soteriology, we study the realities of salvation. We'll find that we draw upon many things we've gone over before in systematic theology. You know, if you read books on systematic theology, take courses in it, you'll find that it's usually presented in a certain order. And I've tried to stick to that order in these studies. And that's because as we get further along, we draw upon what we previously studied. We need to really look at things like the attributes of God as holiness and justice before we understand the need for salvation. You end up drawing upon what you've studied before in order to understand fully what comes after. And as we get started, we need to look, first of all, at three questions as we look at redemption. Why do we need salvation? What are we saved from? And why can't we just save ourselves? So the first question is, why do we need salvation? You know, many people really don't think of salvation as something they need because they're just fine the way they are. There are false viewpoints that hold that satisfaction for sins isn't really necessary at all. Instead, they say that God could just forgive sins without any satisfaction needed for violations of his law, just just outright forgive. And this ties to one of the points of systematic theology that we studied before. When we studied the nature of God, we looked at God's absolute justice. God's law is a reflection of his very nature, and his justice is absolute. Violations of the law cannot just go unpunished. People who hold that God could simply overlook sin, they have a low view of sin and a low view of God's holiness. Sin is not just a minor thing. Sin renders us unacceptable before God in three ways. First of all, sin renders us unacceptable before God because as sinners, we owe a debt to God that we cannot pay. If you'd like to follow along, I'm going to go first to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. In this passage, it tells us that whether we knew it or not, we were under a massive debt, a debt that was against us justly, and that debt stood against us. And I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here, sin is shown to be a debt. There were legal demands made of us. The law of God made demands of us that we didn't even begin to obey. And by not obeying the law, a record of debt began to be accumulated. And the Greek word for this record is literally handwriting or a handwritten certification of our debt to the law. 
The law's requirements, they're legitimate. And they're righteous demands. But these demands are hostile to us, accusing us because we haven't kept the law. And this certificate of indebtedness is a mountain of debt. And we are bankrupt and unable to pay down the debt even a little. Not only are we unable to pay down that debt, the debt continues to accumulate every day a bigger and bigger pile. Second, sin renders us haters of God and enemies of God. And for this, we can turn back one chapter in Colossians to chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Alienated and hostile in mind. In our unsaved state, our very minds were hostile against God. The way in which we thought and reasoned was hostile to the things of God. We were in a situation where we were headed to the ultimate courtroom, the final day of judgment, and we were were actually enemies of the judge and enemies of the law. We desperately needed reconciliation with God. Even pagans had a general feeling that they fell short of the ideal, that their pagan gods were offended and that they needed to deal with that offense in various ways, such as offerings and sacrifices to their idols. Sin is universal, and the feeling of distance between sinners and God, that's also universal. Spurgeon said in one of his sermons, Man, though he knows it not, wants his God. He needs reconciliation to his offended maker, and until he gets it, he cannot rest. He is like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. He is tossed up and down like a thistle down in the breeze. And like Noah's dove, he finds no rest for the sole of his foot. And then third, our sin makes us criminals against the law. Violations of the law are crimes against God. We'll be next in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Romans 3.19 tells us about the universal guilt before God's law, the guilt that faces everyone, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. And here's what Romans 3.19 tells us. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world meaning both Jews and Gentiles are violators of God's law and are therefore answerable to God for this. And the Greek word for accountable means to be liable to punishment and accountable and answerable for our crimes. The King James renders this word guilty, and I think that it adds actually an important shade of meaning here. Guilt means liability to punishment. And our sin makes us accountable to God and guilty before God, liable to punishment. God's perfect justice means that liability to punishment has to be resolved. So our sin means we've accumulated a debt to God we cannot begin to pay. We are enemies of God and alienated from God. And we are criminals before God, outlaws, violators of the law. We're desperately in need of a remedy. Now back in session 22 we looked at a certain doctrine, a doctrine called total depravity. 
This doctrine of total depravity is one of the five points of what we call the doctrines of grace that came from a group meeting together called the Synod of Dort. And what was the Synod of Dort? That was a meeting that took place about 400 years ago in the Netherlands to settle a controversy in the Dutch churches. The Reformation had already come to the Netherlands by then, but there was a teacher at one of the universities, Jacob Arminius, who departed from the doctrines of the Reformation. His teachings began to spread, and his followers became known as remonstrants. And the doctrines of the remonstrants, they were a problem for both religious reasons and political reasons. And this meeting of over 80 members of the Reformed Church met in what we know as the Synod of Dort, to address the errors of these remonstrants. The remonstrants, they had five key points of debate, and the synod responded with five points of doctrine to counter their errors. And today we know these five points from the synod of Dort as the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism. As we go through the series on redemption, I'll try to work in the five points as we go forward in, in the study. The first point of the doctrines of grace that ties into tonight's study is the doctrine of total depravity. What is total depravity? Total depravity, it's not the same thing as saying that mankind is as evil as he could possibly be. Even with as much evil out there as we see in the world today, and we see an awful lot of it, especially lately, I'm sure we could imagine even more evil. You know, people out there, they're still capable of doing what we see as good things. People are still capable of doing what we call civic righteousness. And it's a good thing that people still have some degree of civic righteousness. That people can still show some degree of decency and general niceness and even do some things that we might consider admirable. I'd rather that my next door neighbor show civic righteousness than give full vent to sin. Civic righteousness, it's part of what we call common grace. We studied about common grace in a past session and how it's different from special grace. It's different from saving grace. Common grace, they're benefits that God gives from his goodness to the world at large. The sun shines on the just and the unjust, and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. It's because of common grace that the world continues, and societies hold together and provide a continuing place where God is working his special grace of saving his people. The fact that people are not as evil as they could possibly be is an element of God's common grace. The goal of this common grace isn't to make the world perfect, but to restrain sin from the horrors that would result otherwise. If mankind were as evil as they could possibly be, uh, this wouldn't be total depravity. Instead, it would be absolute depravity. What total depravity means is that there's no part of humanity that's left uncontaminated by the fall of Adam. Fallen humans are truly fallen. Those who are in Adam are born in a state where we're contaminated by sin down to the very core of who we are. In our state before salvation, we tend to think in our pride, that we're not really sinners at all, or if we admit that we sin, we think of sin as being kind of on the edge of who we are, kind of on the periphery, you know. Uh, but, you know, in my core, I'm not really all that bad. But in our unredeemed state, sin permeates throughout to the core of who we are. 
Some theologians, among them R.C. Sproul, would use the term radical depravity instead of total depravity. And the word radical in its original meaning comes from the Latin for core or root. The scriptures state that sin doesn't just contaminate some peripheral part of us, but it contaminates the heart. And scripture uses the word heart to mean the very core of our soul. We can see this in Proverbs chapter 4, which is where I'll be next. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Probably a familiar verse to a lot of us. It says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And the passage here defines the use of the word heart. It doesn't refer to the organ that pumps blood, but as the seat of the soul. And out of this seat of the soul, the heart flow the springs of life. From the seat of our soul flows what we love and what we hate, our will in any given situation, our intellect, how we see the world, and how we see God and his law. Because the heart before the new birth is fully contaminated by sin, all these springs of life are contaminated. It's like when the source of a stream is contaminated by some upstream oil spill, everything that flows from the source is contaminated, and everything downstream is contaminated. Because the heart is contaminated by sin, God is displeased with the whole man, not just a part of the unsaved man. The level of heart-level sickness is revealed by a passage that's probably familiar to a lot of us, and that's Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, where it says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The human heart, the seat of the soul, is desperately sick, beyond the point of even being able to understand the level of contamination. The seat of our soul is deceitful, and we deceive ourselves thinking that we're basically good from birth, and sin is just some peripheral matter that, you know, we can solve it with social programs, or politics, or self-help programs. If a person admits that they sin, they might think of themselves like the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. It looks pretty bad, and everyone makes fun of it, but Linus comes along and sees it has potential, and all it needs is a little love to make it shine. But in our unredeemed state, we were not Charlie Brown Christmas trees that had potential. We had no potential in our unsaved state. We were like long-dead Christmas trees with no hope of life. No amount of effort can revive the dead Christmas tree. Our true state before God is laid out graphically in Romans chapter 3. That's where I'll be next. Romans chapter 3 is where Paul states that all of mankind is under sin. We'll read from Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, which should stop every boast of man before God. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here in Romans, the Lord lays out the charge against all of mankind. All are under sin. Again and again, God states, no one, no one. Then the Lord cites a particular category of sin as just one piece of evidence for this indictment. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The heart is corrupt. And like a polluted source of a stream, the entire stream downstream of the source is polluted, and that pollution is evident in our speech. People may be able to deceive themselves by saying, hey, I've never robbed a bank, I've never killed anyone. But the self-deception ends when we see the evidence for a corrupt heart in our corrupt speech. I'll read quickly just one verse, Luke 6.45, where Jesus emphasizes the direct connection between the heart as the source and the mouth as the downstream evidence of what is in the heart. It says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. At the day of judgment, we will not be able to present our own works, our own righteousness, or any perceived civic righteousness. In a person's unsaved state, they have nothing to present but sin. As Paul states in Romans, all have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. Calvin wrote about this passage in Romans like this. He said, With these thunderbolts he inveighs, not against particular men, but against the whole race of Adam's children. Nor is he decrying the depraved morals of one age or another, but indicting the unvarying corruption of our nature. All of us, in the state in which we are born, are in this state of sin. We are born sinners, and as a result, we sin. Some people are better at hiding it from others. Some people have a lot of outward acts of civic righteousness to camouflage sin. We can look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, where here we see the nature of some sins versus other sins. 1 Timothy 5, 24. It says the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. There are some people who sin in such an outwardly obvious manner, without shame, that in a sense their sins march before them to judgment. Their sins are notorious, and in a manner of speaking, they kind of give an announcement of the sinner as he arrives at the day of judgment. His sins have already gone before him. That's how notorious they are. But there's other people who keep their sins better hidden. There are layers of civic righteousness or niceness that act as camouflage. Their sins follow after them to judgment rather than announcing themselves before. That doesn't mean these sins are less serious. In fact, it can be far more difficult to convince this kind of person that they need salvation. They're putting their trust in their niceness, their civic righteousness, to present before God on Judgment Day. The Westminster Confession of Faith describes our condition before salvation like this. It says, Man, 
by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation, so as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Not only can we not convert ourselves, we can't even make preparation for it. We can't even take steps to prepare for it. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, reveals why we need the work of Christ. And the passage is bold in its description of the natural man as ungodly. It says in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The word that we see translated as ungodly means that we violated all of what is necessary to have a proper relationship to God. The word is asebes. Asebes. This Greek word is not a weak word. It's used several times in the New Testament, each time pointing to those who will receive the judgment of God. In the book of Jude, we have an example of the uses of that word. I'm going to read from Jude verses 14 to 16. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Strong language of judgment. But it's important to recognize that all of us, before salvation, were lumped into the same category. The Greek word used here in several places where it speaks of ungodly people, ungodly sinner, committing ungodly acts is the same word, asebes. Before salvation... The ESV translation of that passage in Romans that we're reading describes us as weak. For while we were still weak, but the Greek word can mean either sick or weak. In this case, it describes someone who is spiritually helpless to change their own status before God. I think the New American Standard reflects the intent of the word better when it describes us as helpless. In our natural state, the state in which we were born, we were ungodly. But the fact is, God requires righteousness in order to be in his presence. He requires righteousness to be in his presence. We previously covered the original state of Adam and Eve in the garden. They were created with original righteousness. They not only had not sinned, but they had true righteousness before God, which was the only way that they could serve God in the Garden of Eden, which many describe as being the first temple, the first meeting place between God and man. I also believe that the Garden of Eden could be described as what we'll see in Scripture as God's holy hill. God's holy hill. What is God's holy hill? And who can approach God on his holy hill? The holy hill is the place of God's special presence, his chosen place, the meeting place between God and man, the place of the temple site. 
and along with a number of theologians, I believe that the Garden of Eden was the first meeting place between God and man, and therefore the first temple. It's an interesting study on why that is, and we don't have time for it tonight, but I believe that Eden was the first of God's holy hills. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. Now read from verse 23. And here we'll see one reference to God's holy hill. Jeremiah 31, 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, God chose to meet with his people to place his special presence on geographically elevated places. It was never just any elevated location. It was an elevated location of God's choosing. He chose holy hills. This started with the first temple, the first meeting place between God and man, the Garden of Eden. There's a little bit of speculation in this, but I believe that the garden was a geographically elevated place. Why is that? I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 to 14, where we have a description of the geography in in an indirect way. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. A river flowed out of Eden, then divided into four rivers, which is unusual in itself. Usually, larger rivers are formed by smaller tributaries flowing into it. And here, it's the opposite. A large water source is dividing into four separate rivers. And these rivers then divide to water water all the known world at that time. And since the rivers flow from Eden to the rest of the world, I'm saying that Eden must have been geographically elevated. It truly was a holy hill. We studied before in a previous session about how Adam and Eve were created with original righteousness. They were not just innocent. God equipped them to be in his presence by giving them original righteousness. They lost that original righteousness when they sinned. And God cast them from his holy hill because of this. Without righteousness, they were not qualified to be on God's holy hill. Later, the place that God chose for the temple was the holy hill of Zion, which was, according to Psalm 48, his holy mountain and beautiful in elevation. Today, the holy hill is the church, and it's not limited to a a geographically elevated place. The church is described in Scripture as Mount Zion. And in the book of Daniel, the kingdom of God is described in symbols as a mountain that covers the earth. And I just very quickly covered the theme of God's holy hill. It really deserves a study of its own. I just wanted to show that God has chosen a special presence where he meets with his people and there is a qualification of righteousness 
to be able to be on that holy hill. Those who have sinned are disqualified to approach God at his holy hill unless those sins are dealt with according to God's justice. In addition to that, absolute righteousness is necessary to approach God on his holy hill. I'm going to read next from two psalms that show the necessity of righteousness as a qualification to approach God and serve him on his holy hill. First, if you'd like to follow along, I'll be in Psalm 15. I'll read verses 1 to 5. A psalm of David, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Absolute righteousness to be on God's holy hill. And next I'll be in Psalm 24. Psalm 24. I'll read verses 3 to 5. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Before we can really talk about redemption, We need to settle the fact that we actually need redemption. It should strike us that even one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, was in need of the work of redemption. The name of Isaiah, you know, it's mentioned 22 times in the New Testament, some of those times by Jesus himself. And that tells us the importance of the ministry of Isaiah. But to show that Isaiah's need for redemption is as great as ours, Let's turn to what is probably a familiar passage to you, Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, in vision, Isaiah is taken to the very throne room of heaven. Isaiah reports on what he saw. And it's not like the popular books written today by people who claim to have gone to heaven. Instead, the scene of glory is frightening in how it makes Isaiah perceive his own sin compared with the purity of the Lord. Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah perceived what was true about himself. His uncleanness, his connection to a people who are unclean. The implications of seeing the Lord who is absolutely blindingly pure. He pronounces a prophetic woe upon himself. He sees himself as doomed. He's in a position of helplessness. He cannot simply engage in positive thinking and get out of this situation. He can't just speak words of positive confession to lift himself out of this. Oprah Winfrey can't help him with words of self-help at this point. He sees things as they really are. He is unclean and God is blindingly pure. Isaiah has nothing to contribute to remedy the situation. He can only bring his sin. But the Lord himself brings the remedy. As we move on with verses 6 and 7, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I don't have time tonight to go into this, but Isaiah saw before him the second person of the Trinity, the Son. This is shown by John 12, 41, which says that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. As Isaiah was undone before the throne, the throne of purity then becomes a throne of grace. The burning coal is administered to Isaiah's lips, signifying the coming work of Christ. And now his guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. If such a great prophet as Isaiah needed redemption, if he needed to have his guilt taken away and his sin atoned for, then certainly the need is great for everyone. Now, as we begin the subject of redemption, we need to ask the next question. What are we saved from? What are we saved from? We need to be saved from the wrath of God. What is God's wrath? It's not a mood of anger on God's part. God doesn't have moods. We can have moods just from waking up at the wrong side of the bed, so to speak. But divine wrath is not a mood. It is settled opposition to evil. As much as God is good, he is opposed to evil. God's wrath is a necessary part of God's justice. God's justice, it's currently limited from its full and complete expression by the goodness of God. Currently, God's goodness towards sinners is offered in his patience and in the offer of the gospel to the world. In the meantime, the world, saved and unsaved alike, enjoy God's common grace. Part of how God expresses his attribute of love is in his patience. We covered this in detail back in session number 18. But just as a little review, let's turn back to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 33. We'll read verses 10 and 11. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, 
Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? In this passage, the people of Judah had already sort of given up. They concluded that God had turned them over to judgment, and there was no remedy, and God had given up on them. But God states through Ezekiel, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. It does bring glory to God as the ultimate judge to finally judge the wicked. But comparatively speaking, God has a preference for showing mercy. In fact, Martin Luther held that God's work of judging and punishing was what he called God's alien work because God's essential nature is love. God has a preference for mercy over final judgment, but that doesn't mean that God will not judge. God must judge sin. Right now, before the day of final judgment, it's a time of patience. In love, God is offering the gospel, and final judgment, for today at least, is held in abeyance until a time known only to God. But God must, on the final day, judge sin. For those who are redeemed, their sins have already been judged in Christ. For those who are unredeemed, God will hold them personally accountable. We studied God's attribute of justice back in session 16. So if you haven't listened to that yet, it's available on Sermon Audio. But one of the aspects of God's justice we looked at is what is called punitive justice. God is the ultimate lawgiver, and his law cannot be ignored and broken without penalty. Law is not really law unless there's a penalty for breaking the law. Breaking God's law is called sin. And while our society laughs at and dismisses the reality of sin, sin is a serious matter. One of the church fathers of the second century, Irenaeus, in his work called Against Heresies, wrote this concerning those who disregard the patience of God towards sinners. He wrote this. Those, on the other hand, who depart from him and despise his precepts and by their deeds bring dishonor on him who made them and by their opinions blaspheme him who nourishes them, heap up against themselves most righteous judgment. Irenaeus was simply agreeing with Paul in Romans chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, which is where we'll be next. In this section, Paul is bringing everyone to their need for salvation. In this case, it is people who think they have it all together and judge others who they see as not having it all together. In fact, unredeemed people who judge do the same things and bear the same guilt. Romans chapter 2, I'll read verses 3 to 5. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? For because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul here emphasizes that no one's exempt from the need for redemption. People who judge others, thinking they themselves, they have it all together, they're presumptuous. They're presuming on God's patience. 
God's patience is meant to give people space for accepting the gospel, space for repentance, but people instead presume on God's patience, thinking that God is either too weak to punish sin or ultimately unwilling to punish sin. Often they think just simply that sin is a small matter, and they have a low view of the breaking of God's law. Looking back at verse 5, we see the translation that people are storing up wrath for themselves. The Greek word that they use that is translated here, storing up wrath, is used for storing up treasure. Storing up treasure. And today, what do we use for storing up treasure today? Today we might think of having a 401k account at our workplace. And we use it to store up treasure in a sense for when we retire. We use that 401k to store up treasure year after year, and it continues to accumulate. At least we hope it does. The stock market doesn't go down too much. But in this case, in verse 5, where it says that the impenitent are storing up something, there's a note of irony here. Instead of storing up good treasure, they are storing up wrath. The same Greek word is used to record the words of Jesus when he said this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Same Greek, same Greek word, storing up treasure or storing up wrath. In a sense, everyone has a 401k account in heaven. Everyone is either laying up treasures in heaven or they're storing up wrath, one or the other. And there will come a day known only to God when his patience will reach a predetermined limit and wrath will come. And this occurred at the flood of Noah's time as a type. God's patience waited during the time that Noah was building the ark. But when the ark was finished, the time of divine patience reached a predetermined end. At the moment when God sealed the door of the ark, at the moment when the rain began and the waters of the deep were broken up, at that moment, the only question in the whole world that had any relevance to anybody was, are you on the ark or not on the ark? If you'd like to follow along, I'll read a description of this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 to 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. It's a somewhat difficult passage to interpret, and I'm not going to go into it fully, but I just want to call attention to verse 20, where it says that God set aside a certain period of time for his patience, which is while the ark was being prepared. When the ark was finished, the period of God's patience was completed. On that day, when the waters were released, the only thing that mattered in the whole world was which side of the ark's door are you on? R.C. Sproul once explained that when people ask, are you saved, we should ask, saved from what? 
But further, the right answer begins, saved from whom? The answer is that God saves us from God himself. We need to be saved from God's wrath on the final day. The event of the universal flood of Noah's day points forward to a much more profound day of sudden judgment. We need to be saved from wrath, and we need to be redeemed so that we can worship God on his holy hill. Now, as we look at the subject of redemption, the next question we should ask is, why can't we just save ourselves? Is it really necessary for us to be redeemed by a source outside of ourselves? We've seen the deep hole that we're in. In Romans, Paul says that no one is righteous. We've seen that righteousness is necessary to approach God on his holy hill. How do other religions try to have us climb out of this hole? Some religions give people a list of good things to do that they hope outweigh the bad. Some religions make getting out of the hole sort of a joint effort between us and God. Mormonism says that we're saved by grace after all that we can do which is kind of a convenient bit of double talk. And by the way, Mormons, they know that that's in the Book of Mormon. That's a quote from the Book of Mormon. They kind of try to soften that up a little bit today, but there it is. After all we can do. But any attempt to cancel our own sins by some mixture of our own effort, it's an attempt to gain salvation by law-keeping. And we're going to turn to Galatians shortly to see what the Apostle Paul says about gaining God's favor for salvation by our polluted attempts at keeping God's perfect law. But first, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 22. Acts 22. Paul had been a Pharisee, and he knew all about the path of the Pharisees toward salvation. I'll read from Acts chapter 22, which is Paul's defense before the mob in Jerusalem that sought to kill him. Acts Acts 22, verses 1 to 3. Brothers, And fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Sicilia, and brought up in this this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Paul could point to his very impressive credentials. He was educated by Gamaliel, the grandson of the great Rabbi Hillel. Gamaliel was listed as one of 13 great rabbis, and he was a leading teacher during this time. In Galatians, Paul states that he was a star pupil and advanced in the ways of the law beyond many of his own age due to his zeal for the law. Here in Acts, Paul brings up the fact that he attempted to keep the law with rigor and severe discipline. If anyone could gain righteousness by personal law-keeping, it was Paul. But after Paul was saved, what did he then say about efforts to gain righteousness by personal law-keeping? He gives us the answer in Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. I'll read verses 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
Paul here sets up a contrast between false righteousness by our own efforts at keeping God's law or salvation by God's grace, which is God's free gift in Christ. Paul then says if it were even possible for a fallen person to earn salvation as a wage for his law-keeping, then Christ died needlessly. His death would have been meaningless with no purpose. But Christ did not die a death that accomplished nothing. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 tells us that there was a divine objective to the incarnation of Christ. And the passage says this in 1 Timothy 1, 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. If we could save ourselves, if we could set up our own ladder to climb out of the pit of sin, then Christ coming into the world would have been a task without a purpose. Does God ever engage in a task without purpose? No. God does not engage in what we would call busy work. Every outward action of God has a purpose according to a divine plan, and that purpose is always accomplished. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was the purpose for the incarnation of Christ and the death of Christ on the cross. Adam lost original righteousness in the Garden of Eden. We bear the guilt for Adam's sin, and we bear the guilt for our own sin. Even if we started from a clean slate, we could not keep the law because we were born with a corrupt nature. We can't build a ladder out of this deep pit. And not only is there no ladder we could build sufficient to get out of an infinitely deep pit, but in our unsaved state, we had no capability. Scripture describes us as spiritually dead. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, I'll read verses 1 to 3, shows the desperate situation we were in. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were not just sick and weak, with just enough strength to climb a ladder of salvation or at least contribute to our salvation. We were dead. For you fans of the movie The Princess Bride, you know there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. We were not just mostly dead. We were dead. And there was no hope in any of our own efforts. That is why, as Paul wrote, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If salvation were to be accomplished, that salvation had to come from outside ourselves. The truth that salvation had to come from outside ourselves, that we were dead in our sins and had nothing to offer to God, nothing to contribute to the remedy for our sins, it's called by a term. And that term is monergism. And we can break down the word into the Greek words mono, meaning one, and ergon, meaning work. The work of dealing with our sins, the work of causing us to be born again into a new nature, it's not a work of both me and God. It's a work of God alone. I was spiritually dead before salvation. 
I had nothing to bring to the table. A dead person can't work anyway. The opposite of monergism is synergism. Other religions tend to believe in synergism, which is the notion that the new birth, well, or salvation or whatever they consider to be redemption, it's a joint project between us and God. We sort of work with God together. Synergism. Synergism meaning, you know, sin meaning together and erg meaning works. Together work. We're going to work together with God to get, out of, get me out of this situation. Perhaps we just do our best to get back to God, and God kind of considers our best efforts as good enough. Sort of like the old phrase, close enough for government work. We don't say that at my workplace at a rocket engine factory. Close enough for government work blows up engines on the pad. Or we do the best we can with what we define as good works, and then God kind of comes in and makes up for our shortcomings in the end. Or God makes a way of salvation, but then God takes a hands-off approach to whether we accept it or not. And, well, that part's completely up to us. In any of these ways, synergism places part of the load on a dead person. If you were backpacking through the wilderness and you needed to split up your load on your back between you and another person, a dead person would not be a good choice to carry part of that load. You need a live person to do that. Synergism places part of the load of salvation on a dead person. The fact that if we're to be saved, then God must save us, and that it's his work, something we can see if we look at our state of spiritual death before we were saved, completely dead and helpless, and compare that to the mighty arm of the Lord to save. And I'm going to read from the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17. How many sermons have you heard from the book of Zephaniah? Probably not a whole lot, but I'm going to read from the book of Zephaniah tonight. Chapter 3, verse 17 speaks of the Lord's might in salvation. Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We cannot save ourselves in a state of being spiritually dead. We need the strong, omnipotent arm of the Lord to save us. As the passage I just read says, the Lord is in our midst and he is a mighty one who will save. God then rejoices over his mighty work with gladness and he exults over us. So we have a comparison. The comparison is between some of the work of dealing with our sins being our work, an impossible work of the spiritually dead, or the work that is completely of the almighty God, a mighty one who will save. As we continue through these sessions on redemption, we can keep in mind the definition of redemption. Redemption is a word associated with an economic concept. This term is meant, this term meant to buy back someone who is a captive to slavery and bondage, and that buying back involved paying a price. Before redemption was accomplished by Christ, paying the price and redemption was applied to us in salvation, we were in bondage to sin. For the redeemed person, that bondage is broken in every way. We are delivered from the curse of the law we incurred by breaking the law. We are delivered from the schoolmaster of the Old Testament ceremonial law. 
We are delivered from the guilt of sin, which is liability to punishment. We are delivered from sin's power over us, and that deliverance makes a way to progressive sanctification. I'll read again the portion of the Westminster Confession of Faith that summarizes what we were before salvation. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So, as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Notice that it says that we have no will to do any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. We can and still do what could be described as civic righteousness, but we can do no good thing that contributes to salvation by our own efforts. It says that we are dead in sin. We cannot convert ourselves, and we can't by our own strength even prepare ourselves for God's work. Now, let's hear what that same confession says about the Christian after conversion. It says, When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin, and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and do that which is spiritually good, yet so as that by reason of his remaining corruption, he does not perfectly but only will that which is good, but also will that which is evil. We're now freed from the bondage of sin in which we were born. Now in our new state of grace, our will has been changed. However, in this life, we're not yet perfect. We still do sin, but we're also being progressively sanctified. This great contrast between redeemed and unredeemed is shown in Romans chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The work of Christ was so complete that no other remedy for sin is needed and no other remedy can be considered. Jesus stated that he is the only means of deliverance from condemnation. And he said this in John 3, 18. Whoever believes in in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is no other means of salvation. Christ has accomplished it all. Nothing else is needed. Nothing else can be considered. As we wrap up tonight, I'm going to end with a quote from a work by Isaac Watts. It speaks of the joy of being redeemed and the praise due to Christ alone and not to our own efforts. When I am filled with sore distress for some surprising sin, I'll plead thy perfect righteousness and mention none but thine. How will my lips rejoice to tell the victories of my King? My soul, redeemed from sin and hell, shall thy salvation sing. My tongue shall all the day proclaim my Savior and my God. His death has brought my foes to shame and drowned them in his blood. Let's pray. Lord, we, as we begin this section, Lord, on redemption, Lord, we pray that you would grant to us 
a heart of great gratitude for what you've accomplished. We look back upon the cross. The believers of the Old Testament looked forward to what you would accomplish, and we look backward upon what has been accomplished. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your obedience, going to the cross, for what you accomplished for us, and for the fact that it is finished. We thank you, Lord, that even though we had nothing to offer and we could not make some kind of partnership between you and us in salvation, that you stepped in with your mighty, omnipotent arm that you work salvation on behalf of your people. We thank you, Lord, for your grace today. Place within us, Lord, we pray, a greater degree of thankfulness, gratitude in light of this. Cause us to think of it often, Lord. And cause us, Lord, when we do sin and our conscience accuses us, help us to look back at the cross. Help us to look back at the accomplishment of redemption and to know that we're forgiven, to know that we are saved, to know, Lord, that you have paid it all. We thank you tonight. Jesus' name.